Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR. Today's guest is Pedro Vasconcelos. Pedro and I met about three years ago. He started his career at Bertelsmann in corporate development before going on to take the position of MD and CFO. He went on to Pearson, where he held positions from VP of Higher Education, VP of Global Marketing, and now VP of Ventures, Innovation, and Partnerships. A quick disclaimer before the start of the conversation, Pearson Ventures are small investors in Mindstone. So thanks for having me, Josh. My name is Pedro Vasconcelos. I'm Brazilian. We met through Pearson, I think, right? So I'm a corporate VC. That's what I do. I've been running the corporate VC arm of Pearson, the learning company, for about four years now. Before that, I've done different things in education for Pearson and for other companies. I've been in education on and off for about 10 years in different roles. So I've done strategy, sales, done marketing. I live in London with my wife, two children, and, you know, I've had a rich life, I think. Uh, you know, we know how we talk about uh, in the future, people have multiple careers. Maybe I live in the future already. So, <laughs> you know, I've been, uh, I've been a corporate lawyer. I've been a photographer. I've done the thing. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, I think uh, we can explore some of that later. Okay. Yeah, they'll definitely ask a few more questions on that. So before we dive into any particular questions, I started to kind of throw an interest or what I thought was an interesting curveball to these uh, these conversations so one of the questions mm -hmm. that I will be asking that I haven't um, I, I send you two or so in advance but there are a bunch of others one of them was written by Chad GPT and at, okay. the, at the end of the interview I will ask you to figure out if you know which one it was <laughs> very, okay okay very good what was the prompt is like interesting questions for a podcast interview I won't give you the prompt. Oh, that might okay, be okay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to cheat. Yeah, I'll tell you afterwards. But uh, yes, yeah. prompt engineering is a very, very real thing now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. First thing I wanted to ask you is, is really what, what do you believe to be true in your industry mm -hmm. that most people in your industry or in your job would disagree with? Okay, so. I, I thought hard about this one, and uh, um, I have to start with a few kind of uh, caveats, I think, because I am, I, on one hand, I'm a VC, and VCs are very particular because they're very kind of libertarians, they believe in the power of markets and incentives being very much kind of a profit and optimizing for capitalism and so on. And But on the other hand, I'm in education, which, you know, is made of a different type of people. So I don't know with whom I have to disagree or agree on this one, but I think... <laughs> I think what I would say, what I would say on this one is, I mean, let's take the VCs and I'll disagree with some of the VCs. I think, as I said, in VC, VC, very often they kind of start on the assumption that if you optimize for market forces, all problems in the world will be solved. And I don't necessarily agree. I think that there are some things that, that, that they deserve, problems that deserve solving are, you know, things that deserve building, pains that deserve being removed. But if you only rely on market forces, it doesn't quite work so well. I think education might be one of them. I think the large parts of education that if you just left it to market forces, they would not be addressed. And then obviously you have kind of healthcare, you have mental health specifically, and you have maybe defense, the environment, the other things that, you know, you can, you can align them with market forces and they solve some of the problems, but not all of the problems. So I am. Contrary to many of my fellow VCs, I'm a strong believer in, you know, a strong state, regulation, taxes, and, you know, some some sort of a strong 
activity and and directing of the economy that is not necessarily just purely market forces. Okay. And how would you square that off again? So what, what would be your opinion on, on impact investing then as you kind of try and, and take take that with, right? So the idea that, that private market forces kind of drive more or less of this, how, how would you think about about that? This is, is a really good question because I have personally a, a hard time understanding impact investing because I think you're trying to optimize for two things that are that are at odds with each other. So I think uh, maybe you need a formula, but maybe you need a way to explain how is it that you, you will combine those two incentives because they are by definition opposed to each other. So I think it's great. You know, I think it's great that people are doing impact investing, but very often you find yourself in a situation that you either optimize for impact or you optimize for returns. So how do you make a decision in that situation, right? I mean, how do you, I mean, you need a formula. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you might, you might end up with like a bar on one to hit and then optimize for the other. That that's what quite a few of the investment funds seem to be, which is basically an impact fund being like a hurdle on the level of, of impact and then optimization maybe skewed towards the financial return afterwards. So you have the demonstrated impact from an incentive perspective, mm -hmm. but the optimization from a from a, a financial perspective, from a financial return perspective. Yeah, I think that that's a good combination, right? So the rules of the game are you will invest in these areas that are interesting areas, so you have the impact hurdles, and then you optimizing for profit after that or for returns after that means selecting the best within the yeah. category. So yeah, it's a good way to go about it. Yeah. Cool. And uh, kind of going back very specifically to to learning, what were were or was the best learning experience that you have personally had in your life and why? I've had a few that were kind of shaped my opinion on things, on how learning works or how relevant it is. I think an interesting one was, I was privileged. I mean, I grew up in Brazil and went to university there. I went to a good, I went to a good private school. And then that led me to being accepted in good universities. And so I always saw myself as being someone like intellectually, what's the word, well-positioned and uh, kind of smart and uh, well-articulated, et cetera. And the simple, and then I went and I did the students exchange. I've spent a few months in secondary school in Germany. So before university and, uh, and just by, by function of being in a different country, having, having to, to, to express myself in a different language and operate in a different environment, a lot of how good you think you are goes away because it, it just don't function so well in, in a different environment with a different language, right? So the way you think, you know, people behave and what's expected of you and the language bears is massive, right? So German was my second language and I was relatively fluent at it, but still you're not proficient, right? Yeah. So, and even today I'm, I'm very, you know, self-aware that, you know, my English is far from perfect. So English is my third language. I've been working in English for more than 10 years, but still sometimes, you know, I catch myself using a wrong expression or saying something funny, or, you know, I just don't have the right word to say something. So I think that more than just what it means that, you know, it's hard for you to be proficient in all languages. I think the fact that there are hurdles, there are things that make, that make learning difficult or that make someone expressing or leveraging or making use of their knowledge just because of a small obstacle. I think that is, that is an interesting, it was an interesting experience to me. And can I tell another one? Cause I have another one that is, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I think something that is, is not quite learning itself, but it's, uh, now that I've, I've been studying learning a lot with you and with Pearson, I think it shaped my way of thinking about learning quite a lot. It's just, I used to build and fix things with my dad a lot. My dad was a big fan of, you know, just taking like a broken clock or a broken bike and kind of a, we had a workshop in the back of the house. And it would just, you know, kind of disassemble the whole thing, get all dirty with grease and understand how things work and then putting them back together and fixing and fine tuning it, etc. So I think getting the confidence that you can take something, take it apart, understanding the building blocks, how one thing, you know, how one piece kind of fits with the other one, how they combine to do something else and, you know, how they interact, I think that 
it's, it's very helpful for life because if you believe that you can, with, without previous knowledge, you can just go and learn how something works, it puts you in a growth mindset, I think. Uh, that's the, the name of it now, right? <laughs> so yeah. when I was 11, it wasn't called growth mindset, like <laughs> just pay attention to it. But I think it's because learning in the end is like, is memorizing facts and understanding how they fit together and how they interact with each other, right? So if you, when you do this with things, you know, with a wheel and a ball bearing, it's, it's, it's opening up this horizon for you. It's like, you can do this, you know, just look at it, understanding how it works and how it fits together. And then you will kind of get the bigger picture and then the bigger picture, right? So that was something that I think shaped me a lot. The way, the way I think about learning It's like, okay, start with what you know, then get to the next bit and it gets to that bit. Because it, when it makes sense as a whole, it, it, it uh, yeah, anyway, it, 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 it sort of helps you, helps you keep moving because you're building on something that you know and how it fits together. Yeah. Yeah, I had a very similar experience actually for coding as you, you mm. went through that, right? So the, the first time that I, I wrote a piece of code that like, I don't know, I had to rewrite it 50 times because I had some grammar mistakes somewhere and it wouldn't compile or yeah. or go through. And then the first time it actually works and the re- the realization that you can just systematically tweak and fix whatever is broken until at some point it does work. And, and if yeah. it produces a result that's different than what you were looking for, you iterate again. But that whole iteration process was, was definitely something actually somewhat addictive, especially in coding about it because the feedback loop was so quick. Like you make a change and you instantly hit compile or see the result of what you just yeah. just did, which in, in many other fields take takes much longer, the feedback loop. So yeah, really. Yeah, and code is scalable, right? Because, you yeah. know, different than my example with a bioscope, I only had, you know, one bioscope with two wheels. So even if I have an idea about, oh, I could build something with four wheels, it's, it's hard because it's real life. But if it's coding, you can, you know, cut, paste, cut, paste, you have something completely different. I mean, yeah. and, and, it, and with code, because it's so scalable, it's like, okay, if I can do one loop and I can build this, maybe I can do... 10 loops and I can do 100 loops and then exactly. it, all of a sudden it becomes something super powerful and big. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those were those were the, the good old days. I remember still building text-based role-playing games which were which were basically just a bunch of for loops of one condition after another after another and stuff like that. So very Yeah, I had the, used to buy those magazines like little magazines on the you know, news agent and you would just write games on on basic. I'm old enough. Yeah. And uh, it was exactly this. And sometimes they had a typo in the magazine and you had to figure out by yourself because <laughs> you just, <laughs> it just couldn't compile. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So then I've got a bunch of, a bunch of, well, questions that I obviously didn't ask you about before, but the, uh, mm-hmm. so you moved around quite a bit. So you, but you did Europe, Germany, Brazil, back Europe, and you went to Bertelsmann twice during your career as well, I think. So there was a, a little bit of a gap. Yeah, I, what, what drove the changes? What was the, what was the back and forth? So it's, with, I think both with Bertelsmann and with Pearson, I've, I've had a series of like two, three-year positions. And that seems to be somewhat of a constant because I think that that's sort of the optimal it's one way to go about things. I mean, now I, I would like to stay longer, but I think that, that kind of two, three year run, it's, it's, it keeps it really alive and keeps it fresh because you have about a year to kind of make sense of everything, solve the easy problems, and then you focus the second year can really optimize. And depending on the nature of the problem, like from year three, four onwards, it's, it, if nothing changes around you, it, it sort of becomes more organic and more you optimizing at the margin. That's that is not always true. Maybe that's true in some situations, or maybe in the companies I worked, I worked at. But uh, to be honest, now I've been at Ventures for four years, and it feels really fresh with Pearson Ventures because you know COVID happened in the middle. We had to change the team in one way, and I'm probably reporting to my I don't know my fourth manager because a lot of changes happening at Pearson. That keeps it fresh, right? And, uh, and in life, I think it's you're right. I mean, I, I went to law school. So my first degree was law. I spent five years learning law. Then I went to Germany, got a master's in law, 
wrote a very specific thesis in German about a very specific aspect of tax planning versus tax evasion. <laughs> very, very specific. And, and that I never used for anything. It's probably gathering this somewhere in the in library there in the university in Munich. But I think, I, I think I'm curious. And I think the process of learning new things is exhilarating. It's really, really exciting. And maybe that's a trap because, you know, I keep, I keep moving from topic to topic and I want to learn something new all the time. And the trap is that you, you, maybe you don't stay long enough anywhere to kind of leave a mark or, but it keeps you fresh. Right. So yeah, I've done, you know, I've been a lawyer. Then when I, I, I actually gave up on being a lawyer, it was very boring and I was young enough to be brave and to say, you know what, I'm young enough that I can try again. And if I have to try again, then I can do something fun. So I went and I studied photography. I was a photographer for a few years. It was tremendous fun. But it's a mistake to turn a hobby into a job because then it becomes an, it becomes an obligation, becomes a job. But I learned a lot. It was a really interesting time in photography because it was exactly when digital photography was becoming acceptable for professionals. So you had that transition of the old timers that would kind of go and develop it, develop the film in the dark room. And, the, and then you had people that were really good at Photoshop. And I, I was very, very fortunate because I had a teacher, a professor in uni that taught me Photoshop, but he was an engineer from the best engineering school in Brazil. So his brain understood Photoshop in a way that very few people do. So the way he taught Photoshop was like scientific. So even today, it's been 13 years, 14 years. And I remember the tools. And even today, if I sit at Photoshop, I know how things work because then he taught me kind of the science behind it, you know, how the pixels are interacting and then how the maths is working. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm rambling, but it's basically, no, I think the bottom line is I love to learn. Come. Yeah. The whole Photoshop bit, I guess that's been relevant for, for a very long time. I would, I wonder how long now that you've got prompt based image manipulation that is, uh, that is coming out now everywhere. It'll be interesting to see how, how it stays relevant yeah. going forward, right? Exactly. How do you interact with Photoshop, right? Because instead of kind of having to understand the back end or, you know, yeah. or being proficient at a tool, maybe you can just convey what you want, right? Yeah. You just, you just say it. Yeah. So it'd be really fascinating. Yeah. I've seen that was that the latest versions of stable diffusion now have, um, they allow you to take an image and to say what you want modified. So you can say, okay, well take this image, but make the sky dark or make it look like a, a Western movie or things like that, like properly just prompt based and it'll take the original uh -huh. and then transform it into the way that you want it, um, which becomes interesting. You have Figma integrations now as well, where you can start to describe it, what type of app you want to build and it'll give you a template based on the prompt. All this lo lovely stuff that is coming up now. <laughs> yeah. So going back to day to day and going back to to learning overall uh, mm -hmm. as you as you think about the future of learning as you think about how you invest what do you see the biggest trends in learning today well that's the one question you should be able to answer right so <laughs> so <laughs> so i think there's a there's a few things obviously we just we just mentioned it right i think i think ai becoming really kind of consumer grade, easy to use, low, low code. Yeah, I think that will change how we interact, how people interact with learning in ways that is hard for us to fathom now. I think it's, it will change everything a lot. It's almost as if, you know, Google had happened overnight, right? So the way we use Google today is very different than it was in 99 when it launched. Yeah. If in 99 overnight we had gotten Google, you know, like it is today, I think it would have been <laughs> as shocking, right? But yeah. I, I think, so that's one thing. Then there is, just to continue with this AI trend, there's something even deeper that is, we're thinking about the effects of AI on how learning is done today and how students interact with content today, how teachers assign courses and activities and grade them, et cetera, and how that has been disrupted. There's another level that is, what do we actually need to learn in a world where AI does a lot of the job, right? So which is, yeah. we just, spoke about Photoshop, right? It's like, mm. what, what do I actually need to learn? Is, I mean, to use a super simple example is in a world where they have Excel, do you actually need to know how to do mental maths or how to use a sliding rule? No, right? So mm. what's, the, what's the equivalent of this really simplified, uh, you know, anecdote about maths 
in a world of AI. So, so I think there's that, or maybe is this, are there new disciplines that don't exist yet that will have to exist because we're in a world with AI and, and so universities and just education broadly defined has to adapt to, to teach or to prepare people for that future. So that is a really big question. Hard to, hard to think about it much now. So as a, as a thought exercise, right, the, I've been thinking about this quite a bit as well, as you know, and the, I tend to, or I'm seeing some parallels with how software engineering has grown over the years, because today software engineering is surrounded by millions of different tools, right? Different libraries, mm -hmm. different frameworks. And so the job of a great engineer is only lightly correlated with their ability to code. The ability to mm -hmm. code is like a, is a base level. But the ability to link everything that has been previous, that, that all these other libraries and tools can do is highly valued. That's how you actually build tools today. And so I wonder if the hard skills that we have put a very strong onus on for years around actually the ability to produce a financial budget, write a marketing brief, write a contract, do things like that. I wonder how much of those end up being the first ones that are entirely automated and how much your ability to manipulate whatever is the most advanced vertical AI for the job you are trying to perform becomes the the stronger productivity enhancer, if that makes sense, right? So the more you're able to yeah. manipulate whatever vertical AI tool you have in front of you, the more productive you can be. Just like if you know all the latest, how all the latest libraries and frameworks work inside out, you tend to be much more productive than somebody who doesn't from a software engineering perspective. And I, I tested this with uh, a group of CTOs. So I asked them, but what are the what are the key things you're actually looking for in when you're hiring people? And interesting enough, the, the ability to code didn't even make top three. So I think mm. they're not even looking at an ability to code. It was yes, the ability to collaborate, the ability mm -hmm. to learn, and the ability to solve problems. And those were the three. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I think ability to learn, to build on existing knowledge, to connect dots, basically, and communication is very important too because. Yeah. I think it goes on collaboration, right? This is kind of a subset yeah. of a, or a component of a, of collaboration and solving problems, because I think something that comes before solving problems, that is the ability to define the problem, right? So the yes. problem I'm trying to solve is this, I'm optimizing for that. And this is how I'm going to do it because and, and that clarity of thought yeah. also helps you with your learning because you can identify, okay, I know this, I know this, that, I mean, that bit I don't understand yet might be the solution. So yeah. it, it, everything is kind of interlinked. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So, so AI, that's one piece. Yeah. So yeah. the other one, yeah, the other one in education that we've been kind of keeping a close look at, and, and that is less to do with technology and more to do with society and trust and the sense of authority. So it has some really kind of human sociological aspects to it is what will happen with degrees. Cause I think in the last 50 years, 80 years, a degree was basically a very strong signal that you have the skills required for the workforce, right? So you would go through this initiation and you would spend a few years within a system that would expose you to the right knowledge. You would acquire that knowledge, take some tests, and you would get like the certificate. It was a very strong signal. Okay, Josh knows how to do this list of things, right? And then there's, there's also some, uh, maybe some socioeconomical signaling that's going on there. You can afford to spend four years in university without working. You can work hard. You are disciplined. You can obey orders, like different things that go in there. But that was a strong signal, right? And, but then, as we all know, in the, in the last, whatever, 15 years, 20, maybe, that signal is weaker and weaker because, number one, there's too many people with degrees. Number two, what university is actually teaching you is becoming less and less relevant for the workforce uh, and less, less correlation with the success. So 
what will what are the signals that will replace the university degree the diploma as the signals that you know employers and society as a whole will kind of latch on will use for to make decisions to you know decide how what your salary should be decide whether or not you can get a job so what are those signals who's going to give those signals why do you trust those signals who do you get them from are they based on the fact that you took an assessment the fact that you you have been exposed to some content i mean what are those signals and how what's the whole ecosystem of those signals yeah. so we uh, i'm not leading the witness because i know we you and i talk about this a lot mindstone but uh, at pearson there's a whole lot, lot of conversation because today you know what what's a university is coming of age experience for the students you know living by themselves being uh, having to figure it out it's learning to learning discipline it's also learning to do research, being exposed to new ideas, and all that is changing. But today's a brand, right? The university is a brand. You know, it's a, yeah. it, it says, I've done the work, here it is, you can trust me, I'm University XYZ, you can hire Josh, right? But uh, there are other sources of that. You know, if a strong company that is known for good training, back in the day would be kind of a General Electric, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they would have their, their university and maybe Google or, you know, there are other brands and all the signals that are emerging as strong signals in the marketplace. So I think that what's that future? Yeah, yeah that'll be a, a very interesting one, obviously, where I have lots of lots of opinions as well. But yeah, very interesting trend for sure. And would you say that the job of trying to figure out what the future of learning looks like, has that become easier or harder? Is it is it becoming clearer where you think the world is headed or or has all this recent whatever last few years of, of evolution actually made it harder to figure out which which direction it's going to go into i think it's becoming richer because i think if you went back if you went back 10 years i think if you went back 50 years you know the challenge or you know 30 depending on the country right i mean i come from brazil things operate in a different time time scale there but uh, I think there is the challenge, let's say, in the second half of the 20th century was, okay, how is it that I get as many students into school with a decent enough education? And then there's a bunch of those, a small percentage that will kind of make it through university and they'll be the elite kind of with the elite jobs, right? So if you make that machine work well, you, you know, society will do fine. You have people trained for all the, all the jobs and society will be happy. And then later it's like, okay, there's more, there's more knowledge, the, 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 the knowledge economy emerges, more services, less manufacturing, so less kind of trade jobs. So you need more people in university. So then you need to say, okay, how do I get more people kind of through the sausage machine to kind of graduate from high, from high school, secondary school, make it into university with good quality, right? So I think in the last, let's say the, the year, the nineties and the, the first decade of the 2000s was basically about that, right? Let's put as many people in university. So you have all the all those private universities in the US and in my country as well, there was a big push to kind of open new universities, make it affordable with uh, student loans, etc. And now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, yeah, but that that we worked so hard for is actually not giving what we want because people have graduated from high school, have graduated from university, and yet they are not ready for the workforce and the employers are not happy and they're not getting jobs. So th there's still a gap, right? I mean, it's how crazy it is that, you know, the complaint is I'm a student, I can't get a job, I'm full of debt. And, you know, in the same room, you have someone saying, I'm an employer, I can't find talent. Right. <laughs> there's a massive gap there, right? <laughs> interesting. Well, I, would, I tend to agree indeed. It's interesting. So part of the Part of the thesis here is that we basically found out that what we thought was a slightly simpler si simpler problem ends up being much more complex now. Yeah, and that, I think there's the layers and layers of, of challenges. I think universities are, by definition, pretty rigid, conservative, because they sell stability, right? I mean, the, the, the brand is stability. I've been here forever. You can trust me. So by definition, they cannot change too fast. I remember when I was in law school, they introduced like a change in the curriculum of private law, civil law. And I remember 
the second year is coming to me and saying, you should not let this happen. You know, they're taking risks with your curriculum. You know, why would you change it? And, and it's, by definition, there's this, there's this reluctancy, right? This fear of change. So it makes it hard for anyone to, to adapt. Yep. We, we touched a little bit about, about some of the signals of, of learning, but going back one step to kind of what's behind that, right? So the half-life of skills is rapidly declining. Right? For, for those that, that don't know, the, the half-life of skills is basically the time that any particular skill that you learn stays relevant or is valued in in the workforce is getting shorter and shorter, which is one of the interesting trends, I guess, that is that keeps keeps moving in one direction. What are some of the consequences that you think about in terms of longer term trends that result from that? I like metaphors and I know comparisons. So I think um, I think the best way to look at this is. I think previously we were in the business, education was like you would you would teach someone to be a football player and they would be really good at playing football and that's what they've done. They would do like their whole life. And now it's much more about you need to make them into great athletes, you know, like generally, you know, strong, uh, good uh, stamina, you know, good uh, <laughs> stretchy and lean and muscular, but, you know, try to optimize for kind of everything and the ability to learn new things, right? It's like you, you need to be an athlete that can flex between sports. It's like, okay, we're done with football. Now we're going to play baseball. We're done with baseball. We're going to play golf. So it's a little bit like this. It's uh, is the is the skills that you that you teach that become more relevant are not this, or let's say skills capabilities is 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 less the thing that they know and more the ability to to be constantly updating that or to be leveraging old knowledge to learn new knowledge so the flexibility of a uh, of being always learning right i mean we you and i spoke speak about this a lot so, so it's a is someone's ability to learn is very relevant but it, it how do how do you do it right uh, so it's less about um I'll teach you how to play piano. My lockdown project was to learn the piano. And it, it's crazy because you can, it, the, the teacher can come to you and teach you piano, but if you don't practice, you won't learn, right? And and you need to you need to learn how to learn because if you keep just playing the piece, it will be very slow. There are ways to learn to make the learning more efficient. So I think that's the key, right? Is, is that will be the kind of the differentiating skill in the future is the ability to have a toolkit to switch from capability to capability, from from skill to skill, to be like a flexible, agile learner. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Well, I mean, for for me, logically, <clears throat> the smaller or the shorter the time any skill stays relevant, the more the ability to pick up whatever is right in front of you ends up being the differentiator, almost by definition, and because it kind of tends to zero in terms of the value of any particular new newly acquired skill which is is interesting yeah yeah and, uh, and maybe i think i think there w- that there will be much more written and researched about processes of learning that are efficient for different types of learning so for sports or for instruments there's a lot about kind of intentional practice right so you just practice practice because you know kind of you wiring your brain to associate that sound with this hand movement or that timing with the way you do something with your body, if you're a dancer or something like this. And and probably things like this, if you want to kind of memorize facts or if you want to become, you know, improve your memory. I I just said memory. So improve your memory or if you want to communicate better, whatever. So I think there is, there will be like a wider, more researched toolkit about kind of the science of learning. And this maybe this is the one thing that uh, the one thing that I should have opened up with we're talking about controversy and things that I disagree. When I started in education about ten years ago, I was shocked with how little science there is. <laughs> it's, I'm shocked because uh, people are very passionate about education because it really it's important, and you know teachers really love what they do. You know it, it was really you know it's a work of love, but that makes it very impermeable to kind of. 
randomized control trials and the hard science and hard fact. So there's a lot of like, no, that's not how you should teach children or that children, they need to be the protagonists of their own learning. There's a lot of like ideologically loaded concepts that, you know, maybe they, they are true, but maybe not. But, you know, I haven't, I mean, show me the numbers. Have you tried this and that and compared the effects? So there's not mm. much of that. Also because it's hard to do, a lot of education kind of plays out in very long timelines and that makes, you know, science experiments more complicated and lots of covariance and other things that kind of play into it. But I think, um, I think there will be more science and now we can measure more, right? I mean, you can do yeah. more brainwave scanning, etc. I think there will be more, more of that. There was, I mean, there's it, historically there's very little, uh, very little measurement in science. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, at least in in long term effects, and that's actually not something I, I, I mean, I thought a lot about the science of learning, but some something you just said sparked another thought. Where, so there are some small areas where there is decent science, right around space repetition, recall, things like that, like the the kind of foundational building blocks. But I I guess when you start to have these discussions that hover around the approach to learning and to teaching, it it the ideological bit is mostly around the long term as well. And so the effects of how how does your intervention today affect somebody in or somebody's motivation maybe in a few years from now, right? Because their entire approach to learning becomes either whatever industrial versus curious or things like that, which which is interesting to think about and to your point, that makes it really hard to have these longer term trials. Um yeah, very interesting one. Lots more yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 yeah, again, it's the question in the beginning. Right? It's what are you optimizing for? Is you optimizing for for memory? You're optimizing for pleasure in learning because then it creates engagement, and then they will learn more. It's uh, yeah. There's many layers to it. Yeah, and so I I know we we discussed AI a little bit already. A lot of this is hard to hard to predict, but I guess. Part of your job is to try and predict some of this, right? Because you are yeah. you're making bets today that you hope are, are right tomorrow. So as as you think about your maybe your investments today, and not not, not with any particular examples, but like mm-hmm. what with the ev- evolutions in the last few months, what are the things that you are most excited by that might that might not have seen the light of day yet? And that you think will see the light of day either towards the end of this year or kind of start of next somewhere. I think, you know, there's one thing that educators have been talking a lot about for a long time is the power of AI to create personalized learning journeys, Mm -hmm. right? And so far it's been like an algorithm, right? It's like, okay, you know enough of this, you can, you can move to the next one, right? But I think if AI really unlocks the ability for a virtual tutor to teach concepts in the way that makes it easier for a for that individual to learn, based on what the person already knows or based on feedback, etc., that would be very powerful. Because you know, really personalization is really understanding who the person is, and then kind of adjusting the message to that individual. And, and that's not what was happening most of the platforms that say, oh, it's, an, it's intelligent, it's adaptive, et cetera. So I think if, if, if you can get enough data points to get there, so if I say, I don't know, you know, teach me the you know, laws of gravity, and they, they explain to me in a way, it's like, I don't understand it when I explain like this. And they can go and come at it from a completely different perspective, kind of, starting with different examples, you know, connecting with, with different uh, previous knowledge, scaffolding in a completely different way, but based on what they know about me, you know, previous data points, et cetera, I think that can be, can be very, uh, that can be very, very powerful. And then I think, I think just kind of, there's something that is not necessarily education, but it's, it's, it's funny how at Pearson, one thing we find in ourselves struggling with all the time is that education is blending into employability a lot right? yes. because ultimately what, when you think education 
there is a, there is a, a kind of a humanity angle. It's like you want to create good citizens that are you know can engage with the environment in a healthy way and with society, etc. But then, when push comes to shove, a lot of it is like employability, right? I mean, can you yeah. find a job that is fulfilling and you can pay the bills and can be a productive citizen, happy about yourself, you know, have a family, yeah. and and you know fit with society it's a bad way to say but it's and you know can you connect with a job that gives you the fulfillment you want in life so employability is a big part of it so i think helping people navigate the skills that they need to do the things they want to do in life and help like it's almost like career counseling 2.0 right i think that will be really interesting because today not only that's very poorly done based on very outdated models but it's also is very shallow, right? It's like, oh, you like you like a challenging, challenging routine, and you like to you like to talk to people, you like human contact, and you like energetic conversations. Oh, you should be in sales, right? So it's <laughs> it's almost like one of those IQ tests from the fifties, yeah. right? It's, it's a bit simplistic. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting one indeed. The career navigability, having played around a lot with with kind of GPT-3 and where, where it is right now, like it is good already. It'll give you a breakdown of the skills required for specific types of jobs. And it will know and understand the differences of those jobs in different size companies. So if you're able to somehow link that to the existing skills of a person and then map the difference, the gap, basically. Yeah. That becomes, becomes interesting. And then you can, yeah, you could yeah. surface opportunistically what the person would want is like hey like did did you know that job xyz seems to both be in your interest area and would make you twice as much money that you are making today yeah yeah and i bet that there will be also some you know some myths that will be dispelled right because you know you have some assumptions about oh this type of job requires that this you know four or five seven ten skills but actually not so they require different skills, right? I mean, there's much more communication in being an accountant or much more analytical thinking in being a doctor or whatever, right? So I think there is, I think there, there's, there will be, there will be, it'll be more of that. And maybe even kind of breaking down to the personality traits that are required. So mm-hmm. I think, I think that could be, that could be something, something interesting for AI to help us with. On the set. I'm afraid of it. Every time we go quiet, I'm afraid of the next question, Josh. Yeah, I think we're <laughs> looking for the for the hardest one for me. Exactly, always. Well, just like looking at the other side of this, right? So as we are more and more reliant on AI and technology to kind of help us perform various tasks, how do we, or or what is your thinking about trying to mitigate how we don't become over-reliant on it. Is that even a thing? How, how do you think about this in a world where, where more and more of this is, is is done by technology and we kind of lose our ability to, to think critically about all of this? That is such a great question. And it reminds me of one of the best books I've read. You probably read it. It's Kevin Kelly, What Technology Wants. So it's a beautiful book because he talks about technology as a, the trends that permeate technology, but since the invention of fire as the first technology, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, anything, a stick is a technology, the financial system yeah. is a technology, but so it's beautiful. It's a great book. And I think honestly, you just cannot fight it. You just, you just cannot fight it because every time humanity, humans develop a technology that improved their lives, they became dependent on it and it's fine. Because incorporated into humanity, right? The thing is, is you just have to be ready for it to fail, and then you have to live with the failure, right? I mean, sometimes there's no power. Sometimes there are no buses because it's snowed. You know, sometimes there's no running water, right? So I think is is, but society has to be ready for the cost. So I mean, do we lose something when we rely too much on technology? Absolutely. Can you plant your food? I can't. Can you hunt your food? I can't. Yeah. Right, you know, you, could I walk for five days and figure out, you know, where to sleep because I'm migrating to escape the winter? No, I can't. So, but it's fine, right? Because it's fine <laughs> because most yeah. of the times, most of the times, 
once you have a technology that kind of gets embedded into society, it never goes away. You can rely on it. It'll always be somewhere. Maybe it's very often it's unequal and it's not distributed equally around society. So there is this massive question of the gap, but it will be there, right? There are very, very few examples, if any, of technologies that were useful, that were widespread, and then all of a sudden disappeared. And you cannot count on them anymore. Maybe humanity is reaching a point where that might happen because now there's 8 billion of us and, you know, the, the, the impact on the ecosystem is different. But, uh, and, but I think in general, it's okay. We'll be okay. You have to. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, actually it's a good way of looking at it. You know, we've always become reliant on new technology. If it was good enough, then the risk basically outweighs the Sorry, the reward outweighs the risk, which means that you just have to handle the risk. That's a good way. And to fall back to the last one, right? I mean, yeah. you, I mean, let's let's you know. I read a lot of sci-fi, and there's a bunch of sci-fi books where you have you know there was World War Three, and then you know the internet doesn't exist anymore. Would it be shocking? Yes, it would. But you know, you adapt, right? So you adapt, and then maybe there's no electricity. Okay, you adapt. It hurts more, but. But maybe remember, you can find out a cheap way to do electricity or a simple way, and then you kind of over 20 years, you kind of get back to where you were. So I think it feels, maybe it's because it's been too fast, right? I mean, from mobile phones becoming a thing in whatever, the 90s, to now everyone literally is a cyborg. Without my, I mean, without my phone, I'm losing a limb, right? I mean, I'm missing a limb. So I am a cyborg. I need my phone with me. I need my shoes, everything. Everyone is a cyborg. Yeah. On that note, those were the questions that I had weren't weren't that I hadn't asked you about before. So the mm. question I always wanted to finish with was the what is the biggest question you have right now? What is a question you have that you wish you had an answer to? So I think so. The question I have is that that would be truly, truly, truly transformative and and transformative like with a massive capital T is are we going to be able to crack the technology brain interface that is the big question because that changes everything I don't care about AI I don't care about you know fire but you know that changes everything because if you think about what a human being is a human being is a machine that evolved to preserve the genes right that's it's a it's a gene perpetuating machine and once you have if you have a neural link a neural link is working basically the whole point of the body disappears because your consciousness if you figure out the neural link probably means that you figured out how to replicate a brain you know on silicon Right? You can take whatever was in carbon-based storage on your brain and you can update, up, upload it to silicon-based storage in the cloud. Hmm. If, you, if, that, if that happens, you just don't need the bodies anymore, right? So it, that is really, really mind-blowing. So, so, so it, it's scary yet you know, fascinating because then you, know, you can replicate humans, you can improve humans, you can store humans you can send a human on a usb drive to the moon or to another system so it just that is that is the real question right? <laughs> maybe it's too big you know i went further than you want to judge but no no I mean, that's, uh, yeah. i'd say there are almost two questions in there because the, there's the human brain interface and there's the what is consciousness right the because the 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 interface with the brain i think we're almost there i mean there have already there are already some things where you can just direct the computer based on your thoughts like those things exist it does that yeah, but not to me they can yeah yeah but i can't i think yeah i mean i think between you know directing something with your brain the way it's done today and i play with some of those technologies and actually mapping the brain in the sense that you can yeah. replicate it you know it's yes, really it's, it's like the alexander graham bell telephone and an iphone so that's yeah. is really yes. Yeah, but that's sad. I mean, how many, many, a hundred years between the two? So, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's going to go much faster now. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, and the consciousness is a, is a really is a big one. Is a really big is a really big big question. We've had a session at Pearson about big foresight, how to actually kind of look for those prompts, what's coming for the future, how to think about them. 
And uh, we ended up going down this rabbit hole of <laughs> what is consciousness and yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting one. It is. Yes. So we just had a bunch of different questions. Do you have any idea which one might have been written by ChatGPT? I think is the is the is this last one the biggest question I have right now that you wish you had the answer to? No, it wasn't. No, it was the how do we mitigate the effects of reliance on AI as as it evolves? It's looking for ammunition to defend itself. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 It's the Skynet. Yeah, it's the Skynet. <laughs> it is coming. <laughs> cool. Very interesting. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. Like, really, really like the conversation. It's it's crazy how much, like, it, it t- always takes, at least for me, like, a little while to get into. But, like, this is... It is actually better in VR for me than just doing this on a Zoom call. I don't know for for you, but in in terms of normal conversation, I I definitely feel. I feel yeah, what I feel. It, it, ha- it helps you to focus. Yeah, it helps you to focus, right? Because you don't have distractions around you. You know, I I didn't turn off my Teams and it was pinging here, but you know, I'm not on my computer, so it's yeah. I think it's easier for you to feel. Let's let's put it this way, I feel more. This is more comparable to a face-to-face conversation than maybe a Zoom call, I think. Yeah. I have to, yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm not 100% convinced. I have to think. But, but, but yeah, it, it does feel surprisingly, surprisingly good. I think, you know, it still looks like a, like a very old-fashioned avatar. I think that has to oh, be absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. I think uh, capturing micro-expressions, it does, a, it does an okay job of capturing micro-expressions and what you're doing with oh. the body. But uh, I think when that happens, you know, so you, have you seen some of the... Some of the headsets, they have microsensors now where they touch their face, your face. I tried true. I did that. I had the, um, I had the, the Quest Pro, um, Uh and it, that actually gets in the uncanny valley. I, I returned it because it, it tries to mimic when you're smiling, like all of this stuff. And the first time I joined a meeting, people genuinely got a bit freaked out because it was not, (laughs) it was on that exactly the wrong like my smile was like a very i've been told it was really scary when they looked at me and they're like what are you doing okay so, so it's it's yeah. not every time there, someone yeah. says yeah in kenny valley i think about that dancing baby there was one you remember the dancing baby from like the yes. early 2000 oh my god that was so <laughs> spooky yeah, yeah. well it's yeah. not too far from that <laughs> yeah yeah cool well thank you very much good stuff have a great day and thanks again for the time. You too. And then talk soon. Take care, Josh. Bye. Cheers. Bye. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity, and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can we put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Vola, CEO at Mindstone, and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.